the values that I have worked with throughout my volunteer career are the same values that I bring to my work in Congress and frankly bring to the Democratic Party. From the Jewish Founders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Congresswoman Kathy Manning, a former Jeff and board member and the first woman to serve as president of Jewish Federations of North America. Elected in November 2020, Kathy, who is a Democrat, represents North Carolina's sixth congressional district. Kathy graduated from Harvard University and the University of Michigan Law School before moving to Greensboro, North Carolina in 1987, where she and her husband raised their three children. After serving as a partner at a major law firm for 15 years, she left to start her own immigration law firm. Before her election to Congress, Kathy worked to expand access to early childhood education, college scholarships, workforce development, and assistance to those in need through nonprofit organizations that included the United Way, the Community Foundation of Greater Greensboro, the National Conference for Community and Justice, and the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. In Congress, Kathy serves on the Education and Labor and the Foreign Affairs Committee. In this episode, despite what you might think, we don't really talk politics, but we focus on Kathy's personal leadership journey, which is fascinating. We discussed why she ran for office, what it was like to be in the Capitol on January 6th, how leadership in the Jewish community prepared her for Congress, the bipartisan support for Israel, and how to keep it so. Take a listen. Hi, Kathy. Great to have you. How are you? We lent you from the uh, Jeff and board to Congress. <laughs> We're proud to have our own there okay. on Capitol Hill. Thank you. It's an unexpected trajectory. <laughs> Is it? So what made you decide to run for Congress and why in this particular time? I mean, you, you, you were always in places of social change, like in the Jewish community and in Greensboro, and, but never before you had run for office. Why now? I think I was just so deeply concerned about what was happening in our government And I had always watched very carefully what was going on. And when we when we moved to North Carolina many, many years ago, uh, Randall and I did become involved in supporting candidates and were right. very active in supporting candidates that we thought were really good. But when the prior administration was elected, I saw things happening that were of great concern to me and I just decided that maybe maybe instead of screaming at my television set, I could do something more productive to try to affect change. And for a whole host of different reasons, decided to to take the plunge. Wow. And, uh, and what did you learn about yourself doing this? You know, like you did have a, a run that didn't, unfortunately, didn't succeed. And then you did it again and you got elected. It was, it must have been a roller coaster and it, it might have taught you a lot of things about yourself. A couple of things I learned. I learned that 
I really liked running for office. That was shocking to me. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have been surprising because over all my years of involvement in the Jewish community, one of the things I liked best was getting to know people from all over and different backgrounds and different walks of life. And that was what I found in campaigning, that I got to spend a lot of time talking to people and learning about their lives, learning about what their concerns were, what things impacted their lives and what, what their worries were and what were the things that we could be doing to make their lives better. And that's what we did in the Jewish world. That's what I did with my right. involvement in the Federation system. So it shouldn't have been surprising that going out and talking with farmers was really uh, enjoyable and going out and visiting tomato festivals and cheer wine festivals in the rural parts of my old district was actually lots of fun. The barbecue festival was a little bit more difficult because it wasn't beef barbecue, but it was still fun <laughs> to be there. Uh, so I learned that I really enjoyed it. I learned that I loved working with the young people that are always part of politics because campaigning is exhausting. So you work with lots of young people who have that endless energy and they think 10 o'clock at night is just the time to get started, not the time to lie on your couch and fall apart. So I loved working with the young people and even today love working with my young staff. I learned that, well, from losing, I learned that it, it wasn't terrible. I thought I was going to win. So I wasn't preparing myself to lose because I literally thought I was going to win until 7.30 on election night. And when my campaign manager walked in and said, you better prepare the other speech, I said, really? The votes aren't in from Guilford County yet. And she said, there are not enough votes out there. And you never know what your reaction is going to be in a situation like that. And I was fine. I learned, I read over the other speech and thought, okay, I guess we're not going to Washington and we'll just see what comes next. And the, the toughest part was that I unexpectedly had to go talk with the staff and volunteers before I went into the big party that we had waiting for me. And I was unscripted, which you, you're never unscripted when you're on a campaign. So going in and just speaking to these volunteers and these young people who had been working so hard for, for over a year that was tough, but when I looked at their faces, I realized that they were looking to me to see how I was going to react and that whatever I said was going to set the tone. So I decided my job was to make sure that they understood what an extraordinary job they had done and that this was just the beginning, that, that what they had done was critically important to our democracy and that they needed to see this as the beginning of their political involvement and they needed to continue and move forward with what they were doing. And most of them, in fact, went on to work on other campaigns or are now working on the Hill. You run again. You didn't let yourself be deterred. Thanks God. And here you are. So it, the lessons were well applied. But uh, something that that struck me when we were talking while you were campaigning is that it was really nice to see that you really had genuine curiosity for the people you were meeting. You know, even for those that were sort of you know adversarial, you really wanted to know them, and it got me thinking. Isn't that maybe an antidote to, to the polarization and the extremism? Like simple curiosity for knowing about 
other people's worldviews and other people's lives and you know which is what you did eventually I learned a long time ago in my leadership in the Jewish world that you can learn from absolutely everybody you meet from some people you learn what not to do but that's still important to be able to identify things that you see that aren't effective or aren't appealing and remember not to do that yourself. But for the most part, I just always found I could add to my knowledge base by listening to other people and asking right. questions. And that's probably the first quality of leadership, right? Knowing how to listen and learning from what you listen. It works for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish more people did it that way. But right. I actually had a call uh, last week. One of my colleagues on the Foreign Affairs Committee, who is from the... Uh, from the other side, from the other side of the aisle, had stood up and made some comments in a pretty difficult discussion that I agreed with. And he stood up to his own party and saying this. And I set up a call with him after that hearing. First, because I wanted to say thank you. Thank you for doing that. Your comments made so much sense. And I know it can't be easy to stand up to your party. And thank you for doing that. But I also wanted to hear from him what is the thinking of your colleagues? Why are they taking the position they take on the particular issue? Because I just don't understand what they're saying. Right. And I think sometimes I think it's really important to know what is the position on the other side? And is it well-founded in different facts or different viewpoints? Or is this just part of the partisan mm -hmm. divide? Yeah. 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 That's, we're going to talk more about it in a few minutes because that's, as you know, that's an issue that concerns me a lot, the, the issue of polarization and reaching across the eye, which is something that you're doing. And I'd like to explore more. But before we go there, like you run again, you win. How? Now, how wait a minute, Andres. I did not intend to run again. I had no idea I would be running again. I thought <laughs> myself, okay, that was a really interesting experience. I loved it. We're done. Because I, I knew we had put everything into that race. There, right. I couldn't have worked harder. I couldn't have raised more money. There was no, I couldn't have done anything different. The district was drawn against me. And in fact, right. I, I attended uh, to every year to get continuing legal education credits. I attend this series of courses and I attend it. Usually it's at uh, UNC does a two day festival of legal learning. And when I went after the, the following year, one of the sessions was on gerrymandering. And I went to that session and they presented from a statistical standpoint how the districts had been drawn in North Carolina. And at the end of the session, I wanted to say, well, I'm exhibit A. And right. if I'd known all of this before I ran, I never would have run because there was no way I could have won in that district. However, the uh, there was a court case brought in North Carolina. And as a result of a, a decision by the North Carolina courts, this the districts in North Carolina were redrawn. And right. so what happened was in November of 2019, all of a sudden I was sitting in my own home. I was now sitting in the middle of a district that was more favorable to a Democrat. Right. That was that was, that, that was a that, fair, fairly drawn district. A fairly drawn, drawn district that includes all the city of Greensboro. In fact, the entire county that I sit in with one other neighboring urban area, Winston-Salem. And so presented with a, a fair district that actually leans uh, Democratic, I had to decide in a week 
was I going to build on what I had created in the prior two years? And I just decided I couldn't give up that opportunity. And by the way, all the issues that were of such concern to me when I ran the first time were still of concern. None of the problems had been resolved. In fact, things had gotten worse. You're now in Congress. And how does it feel to be a woman and a Jewish woman in Congress? Like, you're not stranger to be a trailblazing woman, like you were your chair of JFNA as a woman and in a federation, but but Congress is, is it a different ball game? Does it feel different? Does it feel different to be Jewish there? Well, it's interesting. There are so many women in Congress now yeah. that it doesn't feel uncomfortable. I am the only women, the only woman on one of my subcommittees, which I think is very interesting. The, right. But other than that, there are lots and lots of women on my side of the aisle. And there are a lot of Jewish members. And not surprisingly, we don't all agree on all of the issues. Right. So none of that is particularly surprising. I have to say, I am the first Jewish person to go to Congress from North Carolina ever. Interesting. But that's not something that's ever promoted or talked about. And I don't think it's particularly a big issue. I always found in, in my community that people who practice their religion tend to have respect for people who have religion, even right. if it's not their religion. Right. right. So I, I haven't viewed it as a negative. I remember once you told me, I don't know if you remember, you told me about an interaction you had with a voter who asked you, are you a person of faith? And you said, yes, not of your faith. And she said, it doesn't matter as long as you have faith. Right now, I'm not going to fool myself and say there's no anti-Semitism because as we've seen, anti-Semitism exists and is on the rise. Right. But it's not something that I've ever felt uncomfortable about in Congress. That's good news. And, and but you're not just any Jew. You're, you're somebody that has a, a lot of Jewish activism. So how do you do with these two aspects of your personality? Do you compartmentalize them or you integrate them? Well, I think my Jewish values inform everything I do. So there's not a need to compartmentalize them because the values that I have worked with throughout my volunteer career are the same values that I bring to my work in Congress and frankly bring to the Democratic Party. There is one particular member who I am friendly with on the House floor. She and I have diametrically opposed views on Israel and I don't know if we'll ever have an opportunity, she and I, to talk about that. Uh, but that hasn't gotten in the way of us being friendly to each other. You get a Congress and all of a sudden is January 6th. And that's not very friendly. What went through your head that day? I mean, you were holed up in your office. No, no, no. I, no. Was, in the, I was in the House chamber. So what, what went through your head? I went there specifically we, because of COVID, we were not allowed to be all of us on the House floor. But we, but those of us who were not speaking on whether the Electoral College should be certified, we were allowed to ask for slot time slots to sit in the House gallery. And I wanted to go watch Jamie Raskin speak. Right. Because, as we all know, Jamie had just lost his son. And for a man to leave his Shiva house and go to Congress to speak on this Electoral College certification 
was so extraordinary and it clearly was so important to him that I wanted to be there to watch him speak. So that's why I was sitting in the house gallery and I watched this remarkable speech and was actually writing on my phone because I, w- I wanted to write down my feelings at that moment when uh, all of a sudden chaos broke out and there was yelling and they, the police on the house floors were yelling to the police in the gallery to secure the doors because, as they said, Congress had been breached. So sitting there watching all of this hysteria with the police shouting and everybody startled, the first actually the first thing that we saw happen was they rushed uh, Steny Hoyer and uh, Jim Clyburn and Nancy Pelosi out of the chamber because they are the top three in leadership. And then they secured the doors. And then we all sat there waiting to figure out what in the world were they talking about? We had a couple days earlier, the new members had had a briefing by the Capitol Police on all about what the Capitol Police do and how secure the the, the building was and how many Capitol Police there were and the ways they would take care of us. And the funny thing is I, I just decided that they were going to take care of us. We'd gotten this elaborate speech. They told us they were prepared to take care of us. I decided I was going to believe that. That was number one. Number two, there's no television in the House chamber. And I didn't want to waste, it never even dawned on me, frankly, to, to look on my phone to see what was going on outside. I could never have imagined what was going on outside. I don't think anybody could have imagined what, what was going on. And so I didn't see what was there. But when they said, we may ask you to take cover, they actually took, told us to take out our gas masks, which we none of us knew were there. So everybody was fooling around taking out these gas masks and figuring out whether to put them on or just have them ready. And I remember looking around to see, okay, who else is in the gallery? And there were three people I identified, one who'd been in special forces in Iraq. I thought, okay, I'm doing what he's doing. <laughs> one who had been uh, a woman who had been in the, in the military and a woman who had been the, a police chief. And I just thought, okay, those three are the people that I want to watch because they clearly know what they're doing. So, and then when they said you have to take cover, I also looked around because the gallery has what you would call stadium seating. So you right. can't hide behind the chairs because the next level is right at the top of the back of the chairs. So I looked around and thought, well, the only place you can hide is the very front row has like a knee wall at the front of the balcony. So these were all the things I was thinking about is what, who do I follow? Where do I take cover? The police are going to keep us safe because they told us they would. And as they were pounding on the doors uh, behind us, I thought, okay, sounds like they're secure doors. But the other thing that I was surprised by is that the police on the house floor were yelling to the police up in the gallery. And I kept thinking, why don't they have those little things in their ears that they <laughs> communicate to uh, without having to shout at each other? It was Those were all the things I was observing. And then we waited. They got the people on the house floor out first. We were stuck in the house chamber uh, much longer, at least another 20 to 45 minutes. And at one point they did have us walk, climbing over all the refuse from the gas masks and ducking under the chair railings. And they got us around to the other side of the gallery because we were going to have to exit out that door. And that was when they told us to get down on the floor and take cover. Somebody said, take off your member pins so that they can't identify who the members are because there were also staffers and, and press with us. And lying on that floor, that's when my heart started to beat a little bit. And a couple of things came to mind. One was, 
you know, I just thought, all right, you got to stay calm. And then the other one was, and I've said this before in other settings, I thought to myself, I've been through worse. I have had to go to a bomb shelter in Sidero when there were sirens going off and rockets coming over from Gaza. And this seemed relatively calm from where (laughs) we were, other than the pounding on the doors. We heard not too long before they got us out, we did hear a pop that was coming from outside the gallery door. And thinking back, I think that was when they shot the woman who was climbing through that uh, broken window, because that that was where the door was. It was right below where we were. And I did see that all the there, I think there were three police officers with us and they had their guns drawn and they were their eyes were focused on those doors down downstairs. I just had faith that they were going to get us out safely. And they did. But on the macro level, were you concerned about the democracy in this country or did you think we're stronger than this? When I was in the House gallery and they said the Congress had been breached, I didn't envision thousands of people. I, I just couldn't have imagined that. I envisioned, you know, a group that had gotten in there and released tear gas. We knew that they had released, that somebody released tear gas. I just couldn't have envisioned, I did not envision what was out, what was going on outside. So I wasn't thinking about it then. After we got out of the um, house chamber and they had us run down four flights of stairs and then go to one of the house buildings to a, a secure room where we joined everybody else who had been in the house chamber, we were there for about four hours. And wow. at, the, at the end of four hours, when uh, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer came in and they they gave really beautiful speeches to us and talked about how this was an assault on our democracy and, and that they were trying to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. And then I remember Nancy Pelosi saying, when the Capitol is secured, we will go back to the House chamber and we will continue our constitutional duty and vote to certify the election. And at that moment, I thought, when they secure the Capitol, it's been four hours. What in the world is going on out there? That was the first time it dawned on me that this must have been a massive number of people who who had invaded the building and they they couldn't get them all out. That was the first time I realized the scope of what was happening. Right. But I think there was a, it was a watershed day for, for all of us, right, to understand that democracy is fragile. And that's why it's so important to have people jumping in and leaning in and running and, and participating in the, in the democratic process in any way they can, right? As we saw what happened over the next couple of days, and a day or two later, there was an hour-long program on one of the news channels. There was a compilation of all the videos they had been able to gather. Right. That was the first time I saw what was going on. And, and that was the first time I thought about not only how fragile our democracy is, but how tyrants take over right? and how the big lie that as Jews, we always worry about the big lie Correct. and how the big lie works even in a democracy and how many people believed the lie that had been perpetrated by the former president that the election had been stolen. And I mean, what we've been struggling with, in addition to how in the world that security breach took place and how we were really sitting ducks. But the other thing that we struggle with is why do so many people continue to believe that the election was stolen? What's wrong with the way communication is disseminated today? What's wrong that so many people don't look at what's going on and see the facts the same way I see the facts? Why do we not have critical thinking skills? 
you've been an agent of change for all your you know adult life through law practice community activism philanthropy and now politics how does this way of making change compare which one is more effective what is the role of each of them That is a really tough question. What is more effective? Well, time will tell what is more effective. Um, When I think back about the ways we have made change in the Jewish community, one of the things that I think about was such a seminal moment for people in my age range, and that was Operation Exodus. I believe that when we helped with the Aliyah of the Soviet Jews, we literally changed the face of the world. We helped what ends up being close to 2 million Soviet Jews leave and move to Israel, to America, to other places. And when you look at what those people have done, what they've added to our societies, business, music, theater, politics, every different way, we we helped change the world. When I look at um, how we helped people when when the economy fell in Argentina, how we were there and we we helped that economy get back on its feet. When we've helped all kinds of, with the Ethiopian Jews coming right. to Israel, you know, we those are ways of affecting people's lives that you, you can see the result. In politics, things uh, move more slowly, although I have to say, being there to vote for the American Recovery Plan was extremely exciting because right. I think what we've seen with President Biden is, I believe he's going to end up being much more of a transformational president than perhaps any of us expected. Right. He was the idea was that he's going to be sort of a caretaker president, right? Sort of healing and calming the waters and not really changing much. And yeah. that's what I think other people thought of him. Yeah. But I think, first of all, he has such breadth of expertise. He knows more about how government works than almost anybody. And I think he also has the wisdom of his many years and the many tragedies he's lived through and observed. And I think he recognizes this as an opportunity to not just to heal the country, but to catapult us forward into the 21st century and and to address the things that we have not invested in in this country for many, many years in our infrastructure, in our not just roads and bridges and rail, but broadband and an electrical grid and right. and the people, the, the needs of the people, affordable housing, uh, investing in our schools. There are so many things that we have not invested in and, and we have suffered because of that. And I think he sees that as this great opportunity. And I think he's probably very aware of the legacy that he will be able to lead. We, we all went to Congress thinking, okay, the first thing we have to do is get control of this pandemic, get kids back to school, people back to work, and get the economy going again. And I think the American Recovery Act is doing that. And as we speak, you know, the U.S. is getting to 4 million vaccines a day, 200 million doses distributed. And I'm not talking about competent government helps, but, but this is an example of what this country can do when it gets its mind to something. And forget about now, I know we're used to that in partisan terms, but it says something about American society that when we really get behind something, we can do we can do something pretty amazing, like which is to give all these vaccines and and in blue states and red states. It connected with what you're saying before about you know uh, Operation Exodus, which ultimately what it was is 
a group of people saying, we're going to do this and we're going to put all our energies behind this. You know, I see a point of contact between the Jewish ethos of standing up to the moment and showing up and doing what needs to be done. And the sky's the limit. And America has that too, in a way, doesn't it? I'll tell you, the best example I saw of that is here in my own district. We were lucky enough to have one of the first 27 FEMA vaccination sites that was created in my district in a vacant department store in a mall that's located in an area that's closer to people who might often have trouble getting access to healthcare. I went to visit that FEMA site a couple of weeks ago, and it was the first time I understood what was meant when the president said, we are going to have an all of government approach. Because what I saw at this FEMA site was that it was being run by a team that consisted of people from every branch of the military and all different local responders and from firefighters to police officers to EMS. They were all working together in a team. They were so proud, appropriately so, of what they were doing. They had created this remarkable vaccination center that gives probably between 3,000 and 8,000 shots a day. Not one of those people was asked, are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? Are you a Marine or are you from the Army? They were all working seamlessly together. And right. as I was talking to each one of them, there were two young women that I talked with in one uniform and, and then a, a guy who seemed to be a little bit older than them in a different uniform. And I said, so what do you do? He said, I do whatever that lady tells me to do. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed at it because it just showed the approach. They were all there together. Everybody knew what their job was. They were following orders because they knew we're saving lives. What an extraordinary thing to get to do with my military service. I come here every day and, I, and we're saving lives. And that's actually when I went to the vaccination center, like I also started to chat with one of the service women there. She was a major in the Air Force. And she said, listen, you know, today we vaccinated 3000 people. The mortality rate of COVID is 1%. That means that today we saved 30 lives. And that's just today. And that's just this little vaccination center in Brooklyn. And again, she didn't ask whether the lives she was saving were blue or red, it was just saving people's life. And that's one of the beautiful saving graces of this terrible year that we all had, right? Absolutely. So I want to ask you something in your sort of intersection of your Jewish activism and your, and your Congress. There's this assumption that I think from my own experience is mostly false, but it's still a powerful assumption that the Democratic Party is, is kind of shifting away from Israel. And there we have you that are us pro-Israel as they come. And even, you know, President Biden is, it's, you know, has a long history of, of being pro-Israel. But do you see that as a problem? It's been exaggerated. And if it is a problem, how do you address it in your own party? Well, first, let me say, I just, or a couple of weeks ago, signed on to a letter expressing unequivocal support for an aid to Israel. And the letter was signed on by an extraordinary number of members of Congress from both sides of the aisle. So I think there is broad support for Israel in both parties. And I think there's very broad support for Israel in the Democratic Party. There are some people who um, are far to the left who question the way we support Israel and who would like to see uh, the aid conditioned, but it's a very, very small number. Sure. And I think that the 
concerns that the Democratic Party is moving away from Israel, I think those are terribly exaggerated. And one of the things I had the privilege of doing in my first couple months in Congress was being at a hearing where we all got to ask questions of our new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. And his answers were so affirming and so right on target that when the hearing was over, I, I wanted to go over and give him a, a big hug, although he <laughs> totally inappropriate for a whole host of reasons. First of all, he doesn't know who I am, but second of all, it's COVID. And I don't think you're supposed to go hug the Secretary of State uh, <laughs> if you like his answers. But that's how excited I was about his approach. Right. Now, he's in a very difficult, difficult job, but I believe he has the right values. And I also believe those values are reflected in the Biden administration. I have not held back at all on my support for Israel or in signing on to letters or proposing legislation. And I have many, many colleagues who I know feel very strongly the same way. So concerns are exaggerated, but it still won't hurt to get more pro-Israel Democrats to make sure that the party stays the course. The same way it's good to get pro-Jewish Republicans uh, to also stay the course, not you know give in to the uh, extremes in that party as well. We, yes, we need good, thoughtful people in Congress, and we need more of them because we do see that we have some members of Congress who have a different understanding of what our values are, how we should operate as a government, and that's concerning. And uh, just to finish, I remember very fondly a session that we had in 2016 at the Jaffin Conference where we talked about polarization and the dangers of echo chambers. And so I know this is a concern of yours, you know, how, how polarized we are, what can you do from Congress, but what each, each citizen can do to sort of lower the temperature, try to keep the fabric of the society together, both in the general society and in the Jewish community. I think that's our biggest challenge right now. I think we have so many people on the extremes who are very vocal that it makes people who are in the center a little hesitant sometimes to jump into the conversation. But I think we have to get beyond that. We have to stop letting the people on the extremes drive the agenda. I think we have to build relationships with people on the issues on which we agree. And I have reached out to at least three members of the Foreign Affairs Committee who are Republicans. They are three freshmen with whom it's clear I have shared values, uh, whether it's on Israel or on immigration. And I've called them. I've sent emails to them when they've done nice things. Uh, one of them, she and I were on a, a Zoom together where we didn't agree on everything, but we clearly had the same end goals. And the next time I saw her, we actually gave each other a hug, which everybody was staring at us because nobody hugs right now. You don't even get, you don't stand that close. <laughs> but also we were two people from the other sides of the party, but we had such a good time having this this debate, because we don't actually get to debate things that often, but having this debate right. on this Zoom platform that I feel like, okay, this is somebody I can work with. I think we just have to build those relationships. And just like in your personal life, don't go for the most difficult issue. Build relationships around the things that you agree on and figure out if we can move forward, not talking about those really sensitive issues. And it's hard to do. And there are people who I'm not right now not willing to 
sponsor legislation with because their behavior was so off the charts. But there are lots of people who I, I am willing to work with. Thank you. And I I just want to finish by thanking you for your service. I think that serving in any capacity and in, and in Congress, especially is an act of generosity and, and and something that you do for others. And I hope that especially young people follow your example, whatever the party, whatever their persuasion and get involved and have skin in the game and, and work for a better country and a better society. So thank you. Thank you, Andres. I must say that all my work in the Jewish world, whereas we all know everybody has three opinions uh, on each <laughs> issue, prepared me well for serving in Congress. And uh, I, I appreciate all the support and help and input and advice. And thank you for uh, allowing me to speak with you today. Thank you. Thanks so much to Representative Kathy Manning. We're sure that Kathy will remain connected to the Jewish community and will be able to have conversations like these many times again in the future. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Please write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at adspokoini. I leave you now with a quote from my colleague Marty Linsky, who said, leadership is not a position, but an attitude. So keep leading, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives. <laughs>